Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. And for this morning's sermon, I want to play off the last verse that Andrew just read. Verse 7 of 1 Peter, Peter chapter 3, and that's where I'm going to focus our attention. There are a lot of things that we do which are symbolic that may just, I don't know, pass by us. We don't think about them very much. Last Friday night, where I'm standing, I guess Paul Owen stood about right here. And Michael and Anna stood about right here, and they were married. Now, I suppose that wedding could have taken place anywhere, but it's it's not uncommon for people to want to marry in the church building. Michael Benavides worshipped every Lord's Day of his life, except when he was sick, I reckon. This is the spot where he listened to gospel preaching week after week after week. This is where he heard it. This is where he pledged his vows to his bride. We do that with funerals too. We don't have to, but it's very common to have funerals conducted right in the same place where we have sung praises to God for years and years and years. Now, why do you suppose we do that? Well, that's just very obvious. It's symbolic of the fact that we want our marriages, our lives, the memory of our loved ones to be connected to our faith. We want them to be connected to our faith. There's an interesting word in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Peter's talking about marriage, and in particular, he's talking about a woman who's a Christian, and she's married to an unbeliever. That's very hard, and some of you know just what that's like. The most of this, this seven verses is to the wife, and here's what you do. If you want to convert your unbelieving husband, and he's not even interested in coming to worship with you, here's the pattern. Here's what you do, and it is to live your life in front of him to demonstrate to him that that Christ has changed you. Living for Christ has, in fact, made you a better wife to him. And once that clicks with him, once he sees that change, that it may have a profound impact on him, and he'll want to be a Christian one day. But he gets to verse 7, and he he changes. Now he's he's given instructions to the husbands. And this sermon is about those of you in this room who are husbands. I'm really glad you wives have come too, and you single people, I'm glad that you're here. And those of you who have lost your your mates, I'm glad you're here. But this is in particular to those of you who today are husbands. And he says, I want you to dwell with your wives according to understanding or knowledge, giving honor unto your wife. Giving wives gifts is kind of a challenge sometimes. When Cindy and I, I doubt, had been married a year, as I recall, it was her birthday, and I gave her a Zebco fishing rod and a plastic trash can. Now, you think that's funny, and I do too now, but what's funnier is that I think she really appreciated it. I think she really liked it. I got better at that, I think, as, as time went on. This sermon I've entitled, The Gifts That Every Husband Ought to Give His Wife. 
Now look, look at that word honor. It's a fascinating word to me. And let, let's just talk about it for a few minutes. Then I'll launch into the six gifts that I want to talk about. We husbands don't have the liberty to just choose how we want to treat our wives. Well, I mean, we're free moral agents. I got that. But if you want to follow God, if you want to be a Christian, then we don't just choose any old way to treat them. We have obligations attached to being a husband. Now, the word honor is used in a number of different ways in Scripture, and it may surprise you. In 1 Peter 3, 7, our text today, it's the word honor, giving. I'm giving this to you. I give to my wife honor. But in John chapter 4 and verse 24, or 44 rather, it's talking about Jesus, and a prophet is without honor in his own country. I guess that's intuitive. I mean, it means about the same thing. You think in that passage it means that we would give deference to a person as we would maybe a a governor or a mayor or a president. We would give deference to that person, and that would be to show that person honor. We would maybe use terminology when we met that person to show him or her honor. But now watch. Now we get to Acts chapter 5 and verse 2. And when a description of what Ananias and Sapphira were doing was made, and they remember they, they sold their property to give the proceeds of the land to the church. They said they were giving the whole amount, but they, they, just, they lied. They just gave part of the amount. But look at the word here, proceeds. And it says they kept back part of the proceeds. Okay, ready for this? That's the same Greek word as honor. Now, why is that true? Well, that's, just, that's about amount of, amount of money. And the answer is that money is just paper and metal. Money, what is money? It, it only is important because it expresses how much value we put on something. In the South, what we, we find something that just really gives us sticker shock. Maybe it's a pickup truck or maybe... Maybe it's a dishwasher, whatever it is. You look at something and, and you look at the price, and, and what we will often say is, he's very proud of his dishwasher. It's just a nice, nice way to say that, wow, he wants a lot for that thing. He wants a lot. But, but that's a great illustration of this point. Sometimes the word that is translated honor is translated in, in proceeds. Or what about, what about 1 Corinthians 6.20? You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. That's about the cross. Now, look, the value of a thing is in direct proportion, or I should say the price of a thing is in direct proportion to the the value that we place on it. That's how come gas is so expensive, at least one reason. You're paying ridiculous amounts for gas. It's just shocking. It sort of takes your breath. But the fact is, we're still paying it, And, and a an item, any item that is for sale, any commodity, is worth whatever the market will bear, ultimately. It's supply and demand, but whatever people will pay for it, that's the value placed on it. What would God give for the souls of men? What value would God place on that? And the answer is that we were bought with a price. And you look at the cross and you say, wow, that's awesome. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How much does God love you? Come on, you're worshiping God right now. I want you to be filled up with this. How much does God love you? And the answer is to look at the cross. And you say, oh my. And we, look, we ate the Lord's Supper this morning. And for what reason did we eat it? One reason we ate the Lord's Supper is to just feel the sense of this value that God places on my soul. Let's go to the next slide. Here's another one. What about 1 Timothy five seventeen? Elders should be counted worthy of double honor. 
especially those who labor in the doctrine and in word. Double honor, that's the same word. And then 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. That's the same Greek word. He's talking about our Lord, and some people view him as very precious. You do. Other people don't. They don't. They don't put the value on it. Okay, all of these are the same Greek word as the word in our text today about husbands. It's about all of you and me who are husbands. And it says, I want you. It's a command. You, you don't, we don't really have a choice about this. It is a command. It's a very pleasant command. And I'm telling you right now that the, the best husband in the world is a faithful Christian. The best wife in the world is a faithful Christian. And this sermon, the subject, the points of this sermon are illustrative of that fact. So 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says to husbands, I want you to dwell with them according to understanding, giving honor to your wives. What does it mean? I said to Anna Friday night after the wedding, she was so sweet. She was, Anna's a wonderful girl and, and she and Michael just go to, together so well. And I said, you know, we were back there and everybody was having cake and all of that. I said, you know, you're married. And she just, oh, yes, I am. Yes, I am. You're, you're that man's wife. And I remembered when Cindy and I married, you know, never, I think most people did who were married here reminisced about that. And I remember the first time that I changed from saying, I didn't say she's my girlfriend. This is Cindy, my girlfriend. And I didn't say this is Cindy, my fiance, because we had graduated to that. To now to say she's my wife. And I, I'm telling you, I had, to, I had to push the word out of my mouth because I wasn't used to saying that. Now, I got used to it pretty quick, right? And I still enjoy it. I like to say that. This is, this is my wife, Cindy. All right, six things. Six gifts that every husband must give to his wife. Now, what I'm going to do is to go to Scripture, and we're going to pull out things, teachings of the New Testament, and we're going to put them in the list. They're already in the list, whether or not we put them in. But I'm going to demonstrate that these are some of the things that we do in fulfilling this command to dwell with them according to knowledge and giving honor to our wives. We show them value, that we place value on them by these six things. Number one. With you, I'm going to create a marriage that can be an example for other people. And so the Bible says in Romans 14, 7, no man lives to himself and no man dies to himself. And people pay attention to the, the marriages around them. You, you have an influence over people even if you don't know it. It's easy enough to demonstrate. I mean, do, are there people in your life that have influence over you? Do people have, do you have people that influence you? You say, well, sure. Do they know it? I mean, is it, is it the case that you have expressed to everybody who influences you? Have you told them? I, I, I really appreciate You influenced me. You, you've impacted my life. I doubt everybody knows it that's done that. There are people in this, this congregation who have profoundly impacted other people's marriages. And sometimes it's because of longevity. I didn't realize this until, well, until I was preparing this lesson, but... My father is watching a live stream right now, and he's, he's not able to come. My mother's not able to come to the assembly, but he's watching right now. And he has this honor. He and my mother have the honor of being the, the members who have the longest 
lasting marriage in the church. 67 years. 67 years. Now I would say that all the marriages that are even near there have really, I mean, don't they preach a sermon this morning? Because we look at them and we say, wow, they, uh, they've been through a lot. And they made it. Look at that. That's going all the way, isn't it? That's it. And then sometimes it's because of perseverance. And maybe you don't know it. Maybe a few of you in this congregation will look at a marriage and you say, I know something very personal about them. I know that they went through some awful storms in their marriage. Most people don't know it. I know it. Some of you know it. And, and they're a great example to you because they persevered. And sometimes it's just by observation because you could look at them and you know that they love one another. It's about how they look at each other. It's about how they hold hands when they walk. It's about how they never criticize each other in public. It's about how they compliment one another in public. It's about just their demeanor when they're together. They're really, really, really married to each other. Number one, you want to give a great gift to your wife? You honor her. And one way you honor her is by working with her to create a marriage that can be a good example for other people. First Corinthians, Corinthians 11 and verse 1, and Paul says, I want you to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And here's number two. Um, honey, I'm going to give you this. Didn't you, I've always thought that it would be a better thing than what we do about giving gifts, anniversary gifts, birthday gifts, all that to our wives. And, and sometimes we struggle to find the right thing, you know, because I'm, I mean, she has everything she wants, I guess. What if, we gave her, what if we gave her gifts like these? What if we gave gifts that really mattered? I've always thought it would be a good idea if we gave her something that, that I know that she wants that has to do with me. And maybe it's because I, I put my dirty clothes on the chair. And I know that she would like me not to do that. What if I, what if I give her a card and I say, for your birthday, what I'm going to do is not put my clothes, dirty clothes on the chair anymore. Wow, now there's a gift. Isn't that a, that's a great gift? Or maybe a wife would give to her husband that I'm going to start charging my cell phone. That would be novel. Or what if a husband gave to his wife that I'm going to, some of you smile because you've got that, whatever, it's okay, but maybe a husband would write and say, from here on out for the rest of our lives, I will not use, I will not look at my cell phone at the supper or lunch table or breakfast table. I won't do that anymore. I'm going to focus on you because there are times in our lives when we would be talking if it wasn't for the fact that I was looking at my cell phone, which I do too much. So what if a husband gives her that? Well, here's, here's the one for number two. I, I'm going to be quick to admit that I'm wrong when I am. I don't know. Maybe husbands have a harder time with this. And maybe that's because we're the leader. Maybe it's because of pride. I, I don't know. I know that James 5 and verse 16 says, confess your faults one to another. That doesn't mean that I walk down the street and I say to everybody, let me tell you about my sins. What it means is that there are people against whom I have sinned and they know it and I need to make that right. And so you have people in the scripture who did that. You have husbands who did. And old David, King David, he committed that awful sin. And you remember it, and he remembered it the rest of his life. And Nathan the prophet comes to him, and here's David. He's still so strong and proud, and he pushes back, he pushes back. And Nathan tells him the story about the one little ewe lamb. And you know about that account in Scripture, that story. And 
When finally Nathan says, thou art the man, then David does what I'm preaching about in this point. It'd have been good if he'd done it sooner, but, but what he said is, wow, I've done this. I am the one and I am wrong. I, I'm wrong about that. What about Matthew chapter one? And so you have Joseph and Mary and, and so Mary lets him know she's going to have a baby, but that cannot be. That cannot be because Joseph has never, never been with her. So the obvious conclusion, I mean, this is the way the world turns. The obvious conclusion is that she must have been with another man. And surely in, through her tears, he says, okay, I can't believe what you're saying to me, and I'm going to put you away. I will divorce you. I will. They were legally bound, engaged. And, and I'm putting you away. I'm going to do it privately, but I'm putting you away. I have to. What can I, I have no choice. And you're lying to me on top of that. And the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and he says, hold on, son, hold on. That which is conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the result was, of course, that he, Joseph backed down and he said, okay, wait a minute. I'm wrong about that. I was wrong about that. Now, I know that an angel's not going to come to you and you're not going to have the prophet Nathan coming to you, but I'm telling you there are times when what we need to do is to not, not lead with our pride, but we, but we listen. That doesn't mean that every time your wife thinks that you're wrong, that you are. Did that ever come? I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. But it does mean that you're going to compare when your wife thinks you, you, you've gone astray on something, that you're not going to put your pride up first. First, what you're going to put up is, is she right about that? And when, when she's right about that, then I'm going to be quick to say, you know what, you're right about that, and I am sorry, and I'm going to be quick to do that. We're talking about gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says that, that if you love somebody, you're not going to be puffed up. Hey, let me ask you a question. Gentlemen, are we puffed up? Are we? Number three, we're talking about honoring our wives, and by, we do that by giving these gifts. Here's the third gift. I will love your soul. I suppose many wives, especially young ones, have said to husbands, I think you only love me for one thing. And she's not talking about her soul. She wants him to love her for all of her. I don't know if we think about her soul, though. I, I want you to know that the Bible teaches that I'm to love my wife's soul. Now, this is Ephesians chapter 5. and The Bible is comparing the bride of Christ, which is the church, to our brides, our physical brides. And, and he says, here's what the Lord does, Paul does. He says, for the church, Jesus is going to present the church to him, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that, that he will cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. And he talks about how that he helps us to grow as disciples, as Christians, to help us to be holy, to help us to be what we should be in Christ. The implication of that, of course, you extrapolate that and you say, well, wait a minute. Then the implication is that that's how husbands are to be their wives. Do you love your wife's soul? How do you show it? Abraham was sometimes good about this and sometimes not so good. Abraham in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, you remember he asked his wife to lie for him. Come on, Abraham. Come on, son. You're, you're, you don't mean this. Yeah, he was afraid of the Egyptians. He went into Egypt because there was a famine in the land, and he took her to Egypt. And then he said, you're so beautiful. Somebody else is going to want you. Pharaoh's going to want you. I know that's going to happen. And so you tell them I'm your brother, that you're my sister. And 
It was a half-truth, but that's a whole lie. I need to love my wife's soul. Do you love your wife's soul? I don't want my wife to ever violate her conscience because of my judgments. Now, I may have a judgment that to me does not seem wrong. It seems like the right thing. And I know that she's obligated to follow me, Ephesians 5 says, in everything. I'm the leader. And that would be applicable except if I ask her to do something that's against Christ. But what if it's a matter of judgment? And my judgment is that that this is the way we should do this, but it violates her conscience. I love her soul. And I'm not going to ask her to violate her conscience. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Now, that's interesting because it may be that the action we're talking about is not necessarily a sin, only it bothers my conscience to do it. And, and what the point of the verse is, is that sometimes something is wrong, not just because it's inherently wrong, but because of the intent. If my intent is that I believe this is against God, but I'm going to do it anyway, then even though it wasn't inherently wrong, it can be wrong just, just because of that. But sometimes Abraham was good. Sometimes Abraham was a great spiritual leader in his home. And in Genesis 24, Abraham says, now, I don't want Isaac to marry a Canaanitish woman because of what that would do to him. I I want him to marry one of our own people. And there's leadership. Now, one more thing on this one before I leave it, and that is that you, you can't lead without following, gentlemen. I know this may seem intuitive. This is obvious. But you can't lead if you won't follow. And a man who is that just a pretend Christian, a man who is not serious about his faith, can, can dig his heels in and say, I will be the spiritual leader of my family, but that's just a dark joke. No, you, you, have, to, you have to be a follower before you can be a leader. In marriage, we hold one, a Christian marriage, we hold one another accountable. We speak openly. Gentlemen, do you speak openly about Christ in your home when you... Do you lead in in worship? That is to say, we're going to be faithful to the assembly. We're going to be faithful to Bible classes. Come on, let's go, because this is who we are. We're Christians. And and when you hear a sermon, and maybe this one, do you you get in the car? Do you get back to the house and you say, I was thinking about that scripture. I've never thought about that scripture. Or let's talk about that. Do Do you engage your wife in spiritual things? That would be part of this. That would be what I do. I love her soul. We ought to have family Bible time at night. We ought to read Scripture together. We ought to pray together every night. And if we have children, we certainly ought to have story time, something every night that our family does. Do you want to raise your kids to be faithful Christians? I just think this is going to be an important part of that, and I want to encourage you to do it. And who ought to lead it is Dad. Imagine the benefit of this. Imagine the benefit of this in expressing to your children that the Father is the head of this home. And he's the spiritual head. He's not just somebody who digs in his heels and says, I'm going to be the boss and you've got to follow me. He's somebody who is, a, who is really a leader. He's really a leader. He's a spiritual leader in bringing his family to heaven. And when you pray in front of your children, know that they listen to you. And they don't just listen to the words. They listen to the heart. And you ought to pray for them. And they ought to grow up hearing you pray for them. And when they grow up, you... Pray that they will be faithful Christians. 
Help us to be faithful Christians. Help us to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. Gifts that you give your wife, you should. Every husband, including this one standing here. I, this is, these are the gifts we need to give her to honor her. Here's number four. To give her safety and security. Safety and security. Now, in the wedding on Friday night, Paul talked about the, the word joined together. That Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, that a man shall leave father and mother and cleave to his wife or be joined to his wife. And that's repeated over in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus was talking about marriage and then about divorce and, and that he quoted it. So we are glued together. Husbands and wives are welded together. We're joined together. Now part of the meaning of that or the import of that is that a husband protects her. So Ephesians 5 says that a husband, are you ready for this, ought to love his wife as his own body. No man ever hated his own flesh. You never did hit your thumb with a hammer and say, well, I'm just really happy about that. I'm glad that happened. No, you didn't. No, you didn't do that. You never stub your toe and say, that was a good thing. I'm glad. No, no, you never do that. You, you regret that because you love your own body. The implication of that is that I'm going I'm to protect my wife. Now, it's interesting about what God put in a man. I don't think, I don't think most of you ever went to school about how to defend your wife from danger. If you have a tornado coming to the house, I'm telling you something in a man's psyche just clicks in and, and he's going to start deciding things. This is what we're going to do about this tornado coming. If, if there is some evidence that somebody's breaking in the house at night, there's something that clicks into a man's mind. And he's not going to put that on his wife. I, I just can't even imagine a, a man saying that to his wife. I need you to protect us, honey. That's not insult. That's no insult to her at all about that. I'm just saying that God wove into a man's being that he's going to protect that woman. But now let me tell you something. Satan has robbed or will rob you if he can of that same thing, gentlemen, when it comes to a greater threat. I don't mean that people break it into your house. That's not a threat. It could happen. Or a tornado. Well, we do live in Huntsville, Alabama. You know, we could have a storm. And tornadoes happen, but I'm telling you about a greater threat, and it's you. You're, the, you're a greater threat than those things because you, you let Satan get control of some part of your life, and you'll become a threat to that woman. Maybe it'd have to do with drugs or alcohol. You become a threat to her. Maybe it becomes, maybe it's something about your recreational time and you get addicted to some video games, some of which Christians don't have any business playing anyhow, and you neglect her. You become, a th- you become the threat. You can become the threat. Maybe it has to do with pornography, and she knows that you look at those images. She knows that you do, and, and you just gradually, steadily plow down that road until the fact is you're addicted to it, and it affects you, and it affects your marriage, and you did that to her. Sometimes you can be the threat, and sometimes it's adultery. Sometimes a man will venture out and give his affection to somebody else. And, and what's happened is that Satan has robbed you of that sense that God put in you to protect your wife, and no longer are you protecting her. In fact, you're the threat. What are you going to give your wife to honor her? i tell you what you'll give her. You'll give her security and safety in everything that you can do. And you can't control everything in this world, but I declare the things I've been talking about you can do. And here's number five. 
We're going to give our wives great gifts. And this one is bitterness. Now, this one comes from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 19, which is pretty interesting to me. I, I still haven't figured out all about this verse. So there's a part of it that, that really plagues me, and I'll tell you what it is. But the verse says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Well, that's pretty straightforward. It's a positive and a negative. Do this, but don't do this. What, what plagues me is how come it's not said in the reverse, and, and I started to go down the road this morning and conjecture with you about what, it, what that could be, but I, I just don't think it's useful, so I'm not going to do it. But what I do know is that this is written directly, gentlemen, to you and me, to husbands, and I'm to love my wife and not be bitter against her. Now, you know what, what bitter means, of course. We're, we're familiar with that. You can look up, look up at the definition, anger, hurt, resentment, exasperation, indignant, Let me tell you something about this chapter. Colossians 3, it starts out with, if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. If you're a Christian, then you seek the things of Christ. Okay, I got that. But then between verse 18 and 22, you have five or six, I think six different occasions in those verses where he's talking about the Lord. It's all about the Lord, and everything that we do is about the Lord. And verse 17 says in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father by him. Whatever you do, you're going to do to his glory. We live our lives to his glory. Now, stuck right in the middle of there is verse 19. Husbands, you love your wives. Now, hold it a second. If you're married, you live in a triangle. It is so easy to let our logic degenerate down to marriage being a straight line. Are you thinking this way? Because if you are, we've got to change it. It's not a straight line. Marriage is not a straight line. It's not that this, this, this thing we're talking about is between my wife and me. No, it's not. No, 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 no. You live in a triangle. It's the Lord and your wife and you. And, and wh- whatever's true about your wife, you still have to be concerned about your relationship to the Lord because the Scripture here is giving us instruction, and it's my responsibility before God. Love her, don't be bitter against her. And so, bitterness is, is about a habit. I want, to, I want you to think about your home right now and then be scared of this. I want you to be scared of it. Because we get in habits in creating the atmosphere in our marriages. How's the atmosphere in your home right now with your spouse? Is it that we have degenerated to where we have some bitterness in there? And so, so Hebrews 12 and verse 14 speaks of letting the, the root of bitterness get up inside of you. At our house, we've got a, a shrubbery that was inappropriate, so I cut it down. And, you know, I'm a man, so I know, how to, I know how to trim a hedge, whoop, right at the bottom. Just take her out. And, and what's happened is, and you've done this probably, I mean, she's continued to grow. That root is coming up again. And Cindy said the other day, she said, isn't that nice? We'll have a nice another bush there. And I thought, okay, we're, we're going through this again. Well, this says that a root of bitterness can grow inside of you. And I'm telling you, that's how your marriage can be. That, that you, you have this fuss about something, and you, one person got feelings hurt, and the other one, et cetera, and, and you, you don't fix it. You don't apologize for it, or you don't forgive for it, and then you let this root of bitterness get planted. Now, I'm just talking about the atmosphere in your marriage, and what I'm saying is that a husband is commanded here 
to stay away from bitterness, to keep the bitterness out of his heart, to love your wife and not be bitter against her. That's a tall order right there, but it's a command. And here's the last one, number six. I want to give my wife a great gift. I want to love you as I love myself. This is Ephesians 5.28. So husbands ought. There's a duty involved in that. We don't care too much about duties. We prefer these days to follow our feelings and be true to ourselves. I think we ought to have a movement that says, not be individualistic and true to yourself. Let's have a movement and say, we ought to do what is our duty to do. That action ought to precede feelings. We do what we should, and then we anticipate the feelings. That's particularly true in marriage. So husbands ought to love their own wives as Christ loved the church. A man ought to love his wife as his own body and nourish and cherish her. Now, the word nourish is very interesting. It's only found, that Greek word is only found two times. This is going to surprise you. You ready for this? This Greek word, I'm to nourish my wife, is only found in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Now, when I say that, wow, lights are going to go off. Because you know that's about fathers. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurse, the admonition of the Lord. The word nourisheth or nourishes and cherishes his wife in Ephesians 6, 4 is bring them up. Wow, let that click. Let the synapses and the neurons get to work on that. So bring them up means that I am nurturing my children. I am caring for them toward a goal. I want them to to grow up and be successful, happy, successful, faithful Christians. And a man who loves his wife as he loves himself is going to nourish her and he's going to cherish her which takes us all the way back to where we started this sermon. So 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, a man's to honor his wife. What does that mean? I would argue that it means the same thing as what you have in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 29, and that is that he's to cherish her. Cherish means literally, the Greek word means to warm with body heat. It means to cherish her with tender love. It means to enjoy her with delight, Proverbs 18 and 22. Whoso finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor of the Lord. Or Proverbs 31, and who can find a virtuous woman? Her value is far above rubies. All right then, so let's honor her. Genesis 2.24 is familiar. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the twain shall become one flesh. You know, people, people don't have great marriages accidentally. They have great marriages because they work at it every day. And what I'm saying is for the ears of husbands today, and I'm saying that, that the command of 1 Peter 3, 7 is to honor our wives. How you doing on that? How you doing? And these are six gifts that every husband ought to give his wife. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.